be bold and be brave and just go for it. As photographers, we are always looking for powerful images that, that will hold time in place, that will draw people in and symbolize something universal, something shared, something emotional. Everybody needs to see what's going on everywhere. Pictures just stand out. This is how we remember. Insights, kits, and the conversations that matter with the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. Hello and welcome to a rather unique episode of Shutter Stories. I'm your host, Lucy Hedges. Now, last week we brought you the launch of Canon's new mirrorless camera EOS R3 here on Shutter Stories and invited you to send in any questions you had about the most advanced EOS yet. And I'm pleased to say you guys did not disappoint. Now today I'm joined by someone who is no stranger to the Shutter Stories podcast and is someone you'll have seen a lot during the recent launch. I am of course, talking about Mike Burnhill, Senior Product Specialist at Canon Europe, who will be able to answer all of your burning questions about the EOS R3. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hi, Lucy. It's been quite a, an eventful week for you. Yes, it has. It's been um, <laughs> almost too successful. I've been spending a large part of my week hiding from people because it was too successful and now everybody wants to get a hold of the camera. So I'm <laughs> dodging as many people as possible. So we well, don't have enough cameras for everyone who wants to try it at the moment. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. That's incredible though. The feedback, it's in demand. This camera is in demand. I had no doubt that it would be, if I'm being honest. Yeah, we always hope things are going to be successful. And you know, this, we had a lot of confidence and we believed in this product, but the actual number of people who have actually seen it now and understand all the features, those people who really targeted at now they're kind of got itchy fingers really they kind of go out and actually use it to, and now they understand things like you know the eye control and all these kind of functions what they actually do and they've seen their peers using in the videos it's like yeah i want a bit of this too yeah yeah so what would you say that's been the main feedback what has the talk to me about what the main feedback's been like well so obviously we've some of our ambassadors have been out there sort of uh, using it as well. So obviously there's the guys in the video, you know, like Vlad, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We've also had like um, people from like the agencies, like you know, obviously yeah, Richard Heathcote from Getty, um, obviously our ambassadors like Eddie Kio, And actually there was like Samo Vidic who actually shot like a Red Bull world record attempt in a, in Turkey that actually they ended up, end up with four world records and he was there shooting with the R3 because wow. they needed, it was a one-off opportunity to fly, uh, photograph a plane going through a tunnel. It was the first time it's ever been done, and they only had one go, so they needed a camera that was going to be reliable, 30 frames a second, because yes. he wasn't going to get another chance, basically. Um, yeah, there was like so many of the different ambassadors have been kind of playing with the cameras, etc. But I think, obviously, the thing that kind of sums it up is as soon as they have to send it back, their question is, when can I get it again? <laughs> yeah, you've kind of wet their appetite and now they're eager yeah, to get their yeah. hands when, on when it for longer. Says, yeah, people say, that was nice. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. But when they actually, uh, yeah, people can always be polite, but when they're actually asking when they can have it again or they're actually, you know, badgering people to say, like, well, you know, I need to swap all this stuff out or I need to get this, then you know they really like it when they're actually making, you know, 
effort to try to get a hold of it again. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the previous episode, we asked listeners to share their questions about the R3 with Canon Europe at, at Canon Emilia Pro on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all the social media platforms so that I could put them to you today. Now, we've collated questions from our subscribers on YouTube as well as our social followers across Europe who watched the live premiere of the launch last week, which is still available online for anyone to watch on the Canon Europe channel. Just a little FYI there. Um, so we've got quite a lot to get through. A lot of questions, a lot of burning okay. questions. Okay. <laughs> Hope you're sitting comfortably. <laughs> okay, so you say that the camera has more than 100 improvements over the EOS R5. So can you tell us about some of the things that we haven't heard about so far, some of those hidden features? Well, where do we start? Uh, I think, <laughs> yeah, there's like um, there's like one functionality that kind of, um, again, a lot of the technology comes back to the core dual uh, backs back illuminated stack sensor that allowed so many little small things to happen so for example we can shoot hef files at 30 frames a second now which we couldn't really do with the r5 because of the readout speeds of the data etc yeah but we can also what well, the side effect of that is we now and then allow us to do the hdr functionality so in we've had hdr kind of bracketing for a long time where you take three photographs yeah and you put them together and you get those hdr images you know the classic kind of um you know, very arty kind of pictures. But what we've actually been able to achieve is a real HDR functionality. So we've got three 10-bit images, yep. which are then stacked together. So it gives us like a 1,000 nits equivalent. So it's given a real kind of... Previously, we were squishing these HDR images into a JPEG. So you're not actually... You're getting a mapped version of HDR. But here we are actually producing a HDR image with and a massive, di- massive dynamic range. Wow. And one of the coolest thing of all is the fact that we, because you can shoot at 30 frames a second, you can actually take those three images in like 0.03 seconds. So you can actually really take photographs of moving objects in, and in HDR now. Wow. So you can actually get these amazing HDR yeah, images. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, look at all the things that missed out, you know, the faster focusing, the speed of the focusing has been improved on this camera. So I think I did mention in our in the video, but yes. it's down to zero point zero three seconds uh, or three milliseconds, depending which way you want to meet. Again, I think <laughs> a lot of people have missed that. Um, the fact that you can reduce the lag time of the shutter down to twenty milliseconds, so it's super fast. Um, yeah, there's like so many little functionality that really kind of cool. Again, that people picked up on the white balance kind of that you can now auto. You know, you don't have to do the the elaborate Canon method, you can just kind of press the Q button and take a white balance when you're yeah. in the field. Yeah, oh, so quick. handy. It is. It's, a, it's something that is so obvious and something that we've kind of missed that makes life a little bit easier for everybody. Yeah, I've spent I've spent a lot of time uh, with people trying to get their white balance right. So yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. have something that can just get it done is just for me just, that is mind blowing. That is that for me that's a top feature. That's a really top feature. Um, but we've got things like well, we've got built in GPS. Built in GPS, yeah, that's another thing as well. The GPS is um, oh, so it's we call it we refer to it as GPS because that's uh, everyone knows, but it actually supports more than GPS. GPS is the American satellite system, mm-hmm. so it supports Glasnost and I can't remember the other one. There's another one which is like a Japanese satellite system um, as well. So it's, it will work on multiple satellites, not just GPS. Yeah, yeah. So it's I think we've just always just called it GPS because that's what everyone knows but it actually yeah. is a, a global satellite navigation system so it will work on more than one satellite so therefore the accuracy has been improved over previous products etc 
um, and it, it locks on much quicker than before. Again, yeah. it's kind of useful for the, the target market because because it allows the camera's clock to be super accurate because it can go off the UTC time of the satellites. Yeah, yeah. And for sports and news, you know, having the time in the image that's super precise is very useful because they can time match it to like, um, stuff, you know, for sports or stuff that timing these images is great yeah especially if you're shooting an event and yeah from multiple sources that they don't arrive they're not sorted in the wrong order so like one guy's at the finish line and his pictures are coming in before the guy at the start line you know if everyone's cameras on gps then they're all perfectly synced so you actually get a proper timeline for the editors to run through they're not having to zoom back and forth through the folders trying to find the right image because they're not all matching up because all the times in the cameras are wrong yeah, yeah, such an invaluable feature when you're out there in the field and you've got a job at hand to do. And just otherwise, not just for people who are working, it's still a handy feature to kind of have your images tagged. I think with the other thing that was another feature that was added that kind of, you know, people have requested a lot was um, with the new Camera Connect app, you can actually update the camera's firmware from the app. Again, nice. something requested from, a little thing that will make someone's life much easier. Yeah. I think we said this before, there's, people have asked for these functions uh, and then they've gone into a big kind of wish list. And we've kind of gone through a lot of these and added a few, you know, as many as we possibly could. You know, there's still more on the list that we'd like to kind of get through. But, you know, the white balance, firmware updates. The fact now you can even control the speed lights. If you have the STE-10 and the hot shoe, you can actually remotely control the speed lights, not only from the camera, but from your smartphone as well. So you can dial in the powers if you're using a little studio, you know, via the Connect app and the STE-10 and the camera. Yeah, yeah. So many fantastic additions to this camera. And that's not even all of them. We are, you know, we've mentioned some no, in the live is. stream. So, so Mike, who is the camera's target user? I know, we, you know, we touched upon this during the live stream, but let's, let's go over it again. You know, who is the camera's yeah, target think, user? Yeah, as we said, um, we've been very quite focused with this camera, you know, the people we, we talk to and etc looking at the schedules of um our agency budgets we we really target this camera and listen to the needs and requirements of this, the news and the sports guys these were the the market that we were kind of aiming at because the, the market's changing uh, they have also buying cycles as well so we kind of you know really focused the product on that so like the size of the camera the grips, these are what they're kind of used to. As I said before, a lot of people are transitioning from a DSLR, which tends to be much bigger than a mirrorless camera. So you still want to give them that a nice feel. You know, they still want to be able to hold the camera in all conditions with gloves, etc. So it's not all about size. It's still that you know human tactile sensation of where are the controls. Mm. And how I... well it fits in their hand. You mm. know, a lot of the sports and news guys will are so used to you know. Uh, one series so they're also flipping it vertical to shoot so those kind of guys are so familiar with that so that was obviously a big design kind of tick to follow that into the the camera for example yeah yeah and i guess it's it is really important to have that familiarity and encourage that intuitiveness yeah you know actually i was just, I was just actually working on something and i, I pulled up a picture of the eos one which yeah. was launched in 1989, <laughs> and some of the buttons are exactly the same place yeah. in 1989 as they are today. So therefore, the you know what what's kind of going back to one of our earlier questions, talking to some of the professionals, is we haven't given them a manual. We've just given the camera and to- told them a few things, and off they've gone. And they've all done these shoots, you know, 
without reading a manual. They're just instinctively knowing how to use the camera. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's yeah, it's an often word that you know we, we want everyone wants to be instinctive and intuitive. It's quite a an overused word, but the fact that they can just pick it up with uh, totally new technologies and still shoot with it and do their day to day jobs that they need to get paid uh, without you know having to go on a degree course to learn how to work is kind of super important to them. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that was something that Canon definitely took into consideration when developing and designing this camera and taking all that feedback into consideration. Yeah, it's, you know, listing, you know, this product is very, you know, very quite focused, as I said. Um, so we understood who our target market was. Sometimes you try to make products which are uh, going to appeal to a wide you know, spectrum of users and therefore there have to be compromises made because there's such a wide spectrum of people you can't please everybody. You can't yeah, you know, of course. do everything. It has to be you know um something that will work for everybody it may not be perfect mm. but it will work for everybody where well, this was a, pro- a product where we could actually have a smaller group we can make it better and more perfect for more people because it was actually aimed at a smaller subgroup than we would normally aim some products at yeah yeah now if this is the top eos r camera why isn't it called the eos r1 is this the camera's well, Canon's flagship camera? That's a good question. It's well, a good question. Well, my, my, my recurring joke is, well, what if we called it the R1? What would we actually call the R1? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, 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 as I said, this product, the market has changed dramatically um, over the years. You know, the, in the past, we had the, like a one series, which was the flagship. It was the high speed and all that. And then we had the five series, which was a higher resolution. But we kind of broke that model with when we had the R5, where we suddenly added a high speed and high resolution. So therefore, we want to kind of you know, the old traditions of the the names don't quite match up. So the R3, you know, is a subgroup that we've aimed at a specific market where we saw a a need for a certain type of product. Yeah. But we are, you know, there are some functionalities which you know we would kind of say doesn't quite um, reach what we would call the what. You know, the one series one series has certain criteria so you know the, the durability in every condition and all the functions and all the testing and all this kind of the viewfinder there's lots of small things that the engineers you know have set a goal to you know to achieve mm-hmm. uh, to make a mirrorless camera as comparable to a one series uh, and this product wasn't it this product is a dedicated product focused at the news and sports market which has changed a lot in the last four or five years uh, since the last one series so you know we're, we're seeing a big change in the industry yeah Therefore, we'll kind of respond to that with different products and maybe the naming structure that we have had in the past doesn't won't always won't reflect what the future will be yeah yeah well i hope that answered the question whoever sent that question in <laughs> um will the dslr eos series end soon and will it be replaced with the eos r system there is still a big demand for dslrs i mean uh, currently you know there's like 50 percent of the international market is still dslr so to ignore 50 percent of the you know the global market is kind of um is crazy you know it's slowly moving maybe more mirrorless but there's still a big demand yeah and it's also little things like you know the the thing that makes the the r3 so great as a dslr kind of you know alternative the EVF speed, the sensor, the processor, these are all things that cost a lot of money to include. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that makes adding these to a lower price 
camera kind of impossible. It's actually cheaper to make the basic DSLR mechanism for some cameras than it is to buy an EVF yeah. panel. So oh. therefore, at different price points, you know, there is still going to be people who want these sort of type of cameras for a longer period of time because mirrorless performance, you know, a DSLR will outperform it with a viewfinder than a mirrorless camera. Um, so it's going to be a long time before the whole DSLR market disappears. Yeah. Um, and people still prefer DSLRs in some respects. You know, some of the sports guys feel they might have one of each, you know. And again, that's another reason why the R3 and 1DX share so many components. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many different types of photographers out there from amateur to professional with different kind of needs and desires and, you know, personal quirks. So, I, you know, it kind of makes sense that the demand is always going to be there on both the yeah. mirrorless side and DSLR. And it's also interesting, it's like a cultural thing as well in some regions as well. You know, they, they, they expect a the camera to be in a certain way, you know, um, like a fashion thing. It doesn't matter so much about the technology. There is also a cultural and I'm going to buy a camera. I want a big camera because yeah, if I'm spending all this money, I want people to see I've got a camera. So there's a, <laughs> it's a, as as a thing, as a, as a business, we have to understand all the little quirks and different things for different regions and different cultures and different countries. Not every area is the same. Giving customers a choice is never a bad thing, you know. Definitely. If, yeah. Yeah. We shouldn't we shouldn't go off Henry Ford T and say you can have any any <laughs> camera you want as long as it's mirrorless. You know, it, yeah. we give them give them a choice of what they want, and the customer can decide whether it's DSLR or mirrorless. Well, yeah, exactly, and kind of on top of that, bolstered by the fact that, and I say this so much, but that Canon really does listen to the feedback of the people using its cameras. Um, so, what is a backside illuminated stacked sensor exactly, and what can it do that previous EOS R sensors can't? Now, is this the first time Canon has developed a stacked CMOS sensor in-house and will cameras be equipped with back-illuminated sensors or back-illuminated stacked sensors in the future? I appreciate that was a mega question. So if you just want to take the first part and I repeat <laughs> the next part after, let me know. Basically, the, 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 in a simple way, a back-illuminated sensor is basically you make a normal sensor in reverse, which sounds easy, but it's actually a lot more complicated. Um, you're actually shaving you actually make a sense as you would normally but then you shave the bottom off so you can get back to the pixels so that allows the the light gathering area to be at the top now rather than the bottom uh, but adds an extra very complex process to the manufacturing process so you know any even you know, a micron a couple of microns out when you flip, flip the old thing over can ruin the whole range of sensors so it's super critical um, but it, what the benefits are that more light can reach the sensor, so therefore mm -hmm. you get more dynamic range, better performance of um, uh, ISO performance, but also AF for the dual pixel. We have seen great benefits, hence why we can focus down to minus seven e and a half EV. Wow! Uh, yeah. So there's it's just how the sensor is made, and it's a much more complex way to do it, but it has many benefits. Um, and the stack part is where we then make another sensor almost without the light gathering part but with all the circuitry and we kind of sandwich them together so basically it's almost like having two sensors sandwiched together and you get the extra double the or triple the processing power of yeah. a normal sensor which then allows you to read the data out much much quicker perform some levels of processing on chip rather than having to do it in the, dig you know, the digit processing you can do it quicker as the data comes off the chip reducing noise etc and mm. enhancing performance so we won't see these sort of these level of technologies and um, all products for a while because obviously they 
much more complex to manufacture so therefore the cost base goes up so therefore it's going to be a while before these kind of things um kind of come down to all price levels shall we yeah. say yeah um, but they they open the door to the future that allows us to refine the technology to um improve the performance of cameras going forward as well um and yes you know it's taken canada a while to do it because these processes are quite complex yeah um and that's why you know now it's all we kind of now has the technology and knows how to do it and etc we can start you know refining and improving uh, all our sensor technology um going forward and using these learning processes to improve camera performance overall yeah yeah and is this the first time that canon's developed a stacked cmos sensor in-house um it's the first time we've released one uh canon obviously one of the things about canon is we make the machines that make the sensors so we actually you know some of these other sensors made by other people some of those may actually be made on a canon machine wow canon so, made by canon i like that so yeah so we've all you know, it's, so therefore yeah, there's a lot of work going on on these machines so we, we may have made them in the past as a test process for other manufacturers but obviously using their recipe um so therefore we couldn't use that because it'd be really patented. So, you know, we can't say this is the first one we've ever made because we are making the machines that make machines and there, there are possibilities that we have made for someone else in the past. Yeah. So it's, it's one that we've made for ourselves, mm -hmm. for sure. To what extent, and we mentioned this earlier, to what extent has the image distortion caused by rolling shutter been improved? You know, I remember Vlad and Richard last week on the podcast both being super impressed by the improvements here. So yeah, that. well, it's it's kind of, you know, it's obviously one of the big questions. It depends how you want to measure it. But compared to, um, you know, the, the R3, it's probably a third of the rolling shutter that you would, distortion you would experience with the R5, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in video, it's about a quarter of the 1DX3 sort of sensors kind of um, distortion you would get in there. So, you know, quite a big leap so it, you know, yeah. it still will occur if a certain object but I think now you need to be looking for it it's not so obvious you know it's before you could actually see quite a distinct distortion but it's not totally eradicated which is why we still have the mechanical shutter you know we still have the two shutters because the mechanical has no rolling shutter effect at all so if you are shooting somewhere that is super critical then that is still there for you but all the guys are experiencing this it all the images so you know you really have to kind of stop and look and point it out yeah you know uh and so there is very few images which are what we go into the reject bin is what there is it kind of the saying is the few, few very few images or any images they would actually not send to a client yeah distortion which might have happened with previous cameras yeah yeah well like you said you've got a really it's like almost like a where's wally situation if you really want to find something wrong with the image you might find it if you put a, a magnifying glass up close to it but generally you normally you need to come yourself have the two images side by side it's like i spot the ball kind of thing yeah you know, yeah it, you have to have a reference point i mean it's that that little that or draw a circle around the football go look it's not round it's your eye would hardly register the distortion unless yeah. you have the reference measurement yeah, yeah. Now, but this... the people we're dealing with, um, are, the trouble is, they, the pros are so used to this stuff. They, uh, they can analyze the stuff. And they, they can notice these small differences that the everyday person doesn't, which is kind of interesting to look talk to that one or two percent kind of people who have that you know knowledge and experience. Yeah. So, uh, my next question is something that I've 
heard quite a lot this week. Um, why was 24 megapixels selected as the pixel count? People seem can't seem to get over this. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be people, I think, you know, I think this comes down to that everyone wants every product to be aimed at them. Uh, I think yeah. and it's nice to have a product that suits you perfectly, you know. But as I said, this product was kind of quite focused and targeted at certain um, customer bases and obviously lots of talking to them to understand what their needs were and what is the optimum kind of performance and resolution etc and obviously 24 it gave us that balance of um, speed um, performance and also file size you can't kind of straight state it enough that a, a lot of these guys have to transmit images as soon as possible mm-hmm. and bigger files yes it gives you more cropping ability but you have to kind of look at, you have to analyze the images, choose the images, resize the images. And this is all extra processing steps. If you've got time, great. But time is um, the enemy of many of these customers mm-hmm. um, and the photographers. They are need to, in a world where everything's speeding up, you know, social media, we're all kind of sharing information so much quick, quicker than ever before. You know, when something news, breaking news happens, you know about it instantaneously. You're, your watch, your smartwatch is buzzing to say, look, there's been, this has happened, you know, turn on your phone and everyone wants looking for information and data quicker than ever. And that's what these agencies, et cetera, and freelancers, they're being drawn to deliver images quicker and quicker and quicker, you know. So uh, some of the agencies, you know, I've said this before, is that they, you know, if you go back a few years, you know, they had, when I started doing working with Canon, going to Olympics, you know, film almost, you know, and then they were sort of going to digital and they were given an hour to check the images and send mm, them. Yeah. And then it's gone on and, you know, it got to like Sochi or something in 2014 and we were down to 15 minutes expecting images to be delivered. And now they're, you know, like some of the events in, in um, Tokyo were, you know, images were being delivered in 40 seconds, you know, the actual time from taking the shot to transmitting it to having yeah, delivered. That is insane, so, isn't it? That kind of timing. It is, you know, and if a file is twice the size, then it takes twice as long mm. to send. So there is that. That is a super critical thing. And um, yeah, and there is obviously, we understand that people want higher resolution for certain types of photography. You know, we, we, we created the mold with the R5, you know, 20 frames a second and 45. So we understand that, but this product was, you know, again, listen to the particular customer base, what they needed, and having too many megapixels was nice, but then to better, they would rather have uh, faster and smaller. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so this is definitely a carefully considered decision. I, yeah, but, you know, based I on think, what you've yeah, said, there's method to what you, to reason why you've gone down this path. Yeah, and, and they say it's, the product isn't aimed at everybody, unfortunately. Mm. it's It has lots of wonderful technology that will appeal to people, but, you know, they as Canon has a heritage of working with these uh, sports and news agencies and and often they are the test bed for new technologies that will come to other you know other areas of the uh, business shall we say other types of photography mm-hmm. um but these guys are demanding you know if if, if you can make a sports photographer happy then it's going to you know uh, a wedding photographer is going to be you know fall in love with it as well you know it's, it's it, we need to you know, test it with some of the other uh, the toughest scenarios if you can work at any olympics or a world cup then you know it's going to work every saturday for a wedding you know it's 
We yeah. need to go and put them in the toughest conditions. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of my favourite features, and I think one of, based on the internet, uh, that's one of their favourite features too, the eye control focusing. Now, why has Canon decided to use eye control focusing in this camera and how does it work? Why? Speed again. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously, with these cameras, more and more focusing abilities, etc. I think the the issue has always been, you know, telling the camera where you want it to focus and, and there is nothing we've I used this term before you know intuitive or <laughs> instinctive as looking at a subject you know, it's the first thing you do yeah before you choose where you want to focus and it was basically this seems a logical you know product to bring it back into uh the, you know a lot of the technology we work keep on working in the back end they may not appear in products but there is lots of technologies that we work on and when they're ready we you know if there's a product that matches them you know that the, you have this perfect symmetry and this is one of them um but yeah it's just with the sports and news it's super crit you know where they focus is super fast mm-hmm. it's be super critical and they're changing all the time and the ability to quickly just move subject by just by looking at it is just seems logical with this product when it's all geared around speed to be honest yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a an extension of natural behaviour, you know, just to instinctively focus on something and be able to take that one step out of what it is you're doing and focus on something else or not. Yeah, if you think about how you would normally do it, it basically you would look at where you want to focus and then you would send the signal from your brain to your thumb, which would then move the little joystick across. Yeah. And then you're a little, your, your eyes going, no, left a bit, left a bit more, left a bit, no, back, back a bit. And this is all <laughs> kind of going on. Well, you know, and this is all takes a little time, yeah, especially as you move it across. It's, you know, it can take a, a second or so. But if you actually cut out the whole kind of, you know, telling what your thumb what to do and, you know, feeding back, it becomes quicker, more instinctive, and you can move around, you know, it becomes super fast to kind of just look at the subject, press the button, bang, on that yeah. one, look at that one, press that one. You know, it, it becomes very, yeah. And, and it's technology we've had in the past. But, and as I say, it's, you know, it's quite logical it's what you do it becomes quite simple you know how to do once you understand the basic principles of it it's it's kind of very very cool functionality and again with these user bases you know (laughs) we'll get a good testing before you know we could actually you know take to the next level you know to roll out to other functions for the cameras it is so cool. I think that word doesn't even do that feature justice. It is mind blowing. <laughs> it is, and it's what's great is people understand. I think that the thing that um, super critical to say is it's not about focusing on a you know a blade of grass. Looking at a blade of grass, I focus on that. It's about instructing the camera where to focus. You know, pointing at the person, pointing at the object. And then letting the advanced, you know, deep learning AI system kick in, so it identifies which of the players, you know, if you know, I kind of used this, this scenario before. Is that red carpet? You have, um, you know, different celebrities. Which yeah. celebrity does it focus on? You know, well, the answer is you know because you're been told by your editor or your client of <laughs> who you need to focus on, who's yeah. more important than someone else. And that will differ depending on, you know, country, region, you know, yeah. whether you're working for a soap magazine or you're working for Tatler, or, you know, the different, you know, there's so many different things that the person knows and the camera would never know. Yeah. And therefore, by uh, I can look at the person that I need and then the camera can do all the rest for me. And then I can concentrate on, you know, taking the photograph, the timing, the, you know, composition, 
all those kind of things which make the, make the photograph sellable. I don't need to worry about the technical aspects of where I put my AF point. Let the camera do that. Yeah. I've just got to tell it which of these celebrities is the one to track coming towards it. I can imagine just how many people are itching to get their, I was about to say fingers, but their <laughs> eyes on this feature. Yeah, there's lots of people who want to test it. <laughs> Um, and talk me through how it works. How does it how does it work? So in the viewfinder, there are uh, eight little um, infrared lights, mm-hmm. which kind of um, which are actually used for different a uh, different distances. So not all used at the same time. So they're used at different distances. Some are actually designed to recognise if you've got glasses, so they will have a different kind of um, pitch to go through the glass. Um, so different angles, etc. And then there's a little beam splitter that splits the light going to from the EVF onto a little um, 7,000 pixel kind of sensor, 7,600 and something. And that actually tracks where your eye is. Yeah. Um, wow. And the actual, basically, we create a, a little, like, when we calibrate it, you create, like, a little representation of your fingerprint of your eye, which is a pankyogram, if I seem to remember. Um, and then they actually can actually follow that kind of fingerprint uh, with the infrared light that kind of and can therefore works out where you're looking um, at the time. And so therefore it will work with glasses. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, it struggles a bit with some very focals because it depends where the cutoff point is. It obviously won't work with like mirrored sunglasses mm-hmm. um, because they're obviously reflected around. They're not ideal for, you know, any glasses because it's blocking, you know, infrared light um yeah etc so sunglasses a mirror glasses you know tinted glasses very focals is a bit kind of um patchy with because obviously it depends where you're how we, how they're constructed and where you're you know, you're, you know where the angle is etc yeah so but it can work uh, i do have very focals and it does work it's maybe not as accurate as mm-hmm. without it will work with contact lenses some hard contact lenses it maybe not as accurate and there are certain people with different you know maybe some eye defects etc it may not work with yeah so we're kind of you know but the majority of people it works fine yeah there's not very there's not many situations where it's not going to work but just people be aware that there are certain scenarios where it's not yeah, it's not going to work with everybody, and yeah. that's why we have things like the smart control and the multi-control as well. Exactly. There are limitations of it, you know, and it's interesting. We've obviously worked, Canon obviously to have a big um, op- optical division, which work with the um, um, opticians and create all the measuring and eye detections and for health care, et cetera. So we've, you know, we've worked with a lot with them, and so therefore, yeah, they've provided you know, some of the background information and the you know, we, so we know that the, the lights that we use are perfectly safe for eyes, but at the right frequency that won't cause any eye damage at all. You know, the infrared frequency that's used will, you know, is you know, also very similar to some of the medical stuff that we use, etc. So there's lots of uh, cross-pollination of technologies. You know, it's so lucky that we have experts in these sort of fields yeah. actually you know, within Canada that can actually advise uh, on the, some of this technology. It's kind of interesting you know, and fun for them to all kind of, calibrate you know together to collaborate together shall we say um <laughs> so they um calibrate is the the next step um and therefore they they can have, you know, try something different outside of their normal business kind of atmosphere yeah um but yeah the other thing is that you do need to calibrate the system it won't work great out of the box and the more you calibrate it the more it can actually you know, the actual performance improves so mm-hmm. you know just keep recalibrating it and also calibrating in different conditions you don't have to do it like, you know, when you walk into a different building, et cetera. But just if you can kind of 
spend the, you know some time calibrating it you know in different conditions you might yeah. use it and then it's all sorted um, and then you can have you need different banks for if you wear glasses and without glasses perhaps if you have with contacts and without contacts you may find the performance increases as well yeah um, if you have and you've got up to six different banks and you can name the banks as well to, so you know which what 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 each one is um, and you can even save them to a memory card so if you do have more oh, than one camera you yes. can actually then you only have to do it in one camera and you can just load it into the other camera that's so, so handy that saves time as well so yeah you don't have to have if you've got two cameras you don't have to spend all your time calibrating and <laughs> every time you go somewhere new you just kind of do one big session and i'm on one camera and you can use it on both cameras yeah yeah and some people there's a few people out there that want to know is it safe is it a safe feature as i said we've worked with uh, the people who make the stuff that you know that will check your eyesight basically all the instruments when you go to an opticians or go to the hospital for eye checkups we're actually making the equipment that they often use so we understand what damages eyes and how you know the defects in eyes and yeah. what causes all that. We, we have all that knowledge within Canon. So therefore, the whole, the two teams working together in the medical division and the photo division, we can actually, you know, have, you know, we have an expert resource within our own division that yeah. can tell us, you know, what, so therefore we can choose the right infrared frequency. They told us about how we can improve the eye tracking and the, uh, the pancreagram, et cetera, and um, what sort of frequencies would work with the eyes and, you know, what, you know, without any causing any damage mm -hmm. so it's a there's no it's totally totally safe yeah well i imagine with you know such an incredible feature that a lot of research has gone into it you know you're reviving it from the you know, early 90s you know i would expect this kind of research to go into it so i'm not surprised by anything you've just said yeah it's you know it's, it's a reason it disappeared for a while and then we've brought it back because we now we have so much more knowledge from working in the past canon has been quite siloed so in the past they may not mm. even talk to them may not even acknowledge them in the canteen but now <laughs> we had cross teams are working across different divisions and on different yes. technologies because imaging is you know working in so many areas they you know imaging underlines so many of canon's businesses so therefore the imaging teams and the cameras and lenses and all this stuff work across a wider spectrum of stuff um than ever before yeah, yeah. So let's talk about another very cool feature, vehicle tracking autofocus. Now, what types of cars and motorcycles can the vehicle tracking autofocus detect and where does it focus on the vehicle? So, so it's basically, we use what we call, what's known as deep learning, which is basically you get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, the more images, the better of objects. And you, you teach the computer a basic how to recognize a certain object. And then it kind of goes away and analyzes and basically knows these are Formula One cars. And thought, okay, now I understand what shape it is, what it looks like. So it depends what you put into it to what it recognizes. So we've, as a sports and news camera, we've programmed it mainly with sports cars. So that's like racing cars. So that'd be like open top GT cars. Open, sorry, open form, open top Formula cars and so Formula One, Formula Two, GP2, Formula Four, that kind of classic racing cars yeah and then obviously gt cars which are you know tuned versions of everyday cars um and as a side effect of that it will recognize normal everyday cars as well but it won't recognize specialist kind of vehicles should we say it won't mm. recognize golf carts or you know or go-karting because they have they don't look anything like a normal car or yeah. a formula one car 
you know, it won't follow cranes or tanks, for example. You know, it will recognize something within those parameters. Um, and the same with motorbikes. You know, motorbikes are quite consistent and they sort of follow scrambling bikes, you know, off-roaders, racing bikes, which then have a relationship to like, everyday bikes. But it won't do scooters because, again, they look very different from a motorbike. Yes, yes. So it is looking at a, a pattern of what a motorbike, traditional motorbike looks like. And that's what it's kind of looking for. Ah, that looks like a motorbike. So therefore, you know, does it match any of these in yeah, my database? Yeah. Yes, it does. So therefore, that's what I track. If it doesn't match up. So again, a bicycle, for example, is very different shape of how mm. the rider sits. So it doesn't recognize a bicycle as interesting, yeah. a motorbike. Yeah. But you can actually track still. What, what's interesting is it does actually track those vehicle, uh, bicycles if you put humans because it still recognizes the person. <laughs> on the bike yeah so if you sit it to person then it will follow cyclists because it will recognize a person riding the bike which is where you want um so where your focus is for the vehicle it depends on the normal mode so if it's in default mode it will probably focus on the bonnet of the vehicle but if you have this what we call spot which is not maybe the most instinctive uh, naming uh for a function <laughs> then it's been programmed to recognize the helmet of open top vehicles so it's not yeah. looking for a helmet to a windscreen it's saying if it's an open top vehicle like a formula one car then or a motorbike then there's going to be a rider with a helmet and that's where we're going to start instinctively look um, i think there's too many issues of trying to focus through the windscreen on a yeah, helmet because yeah. too many reflections um shade but on an open top vehicle that is identifiable as a, you know as a logical place of where they're going to be uh, within a pattern so therefore you can focus on those yeah yeah animal detection could you say tell us something about this feature you know because i remember last week richard heathcote who doesn't normally shoot wildlife he was pretty impressed by it um so what kind of animals does it work with and are there plans to expand the scope of animal detection af and vehicle detection af so um the animal af is basically the same as the r5 we've not changed the algorithm mm -hmm. at all in the r3 um, but obviously, like Richard shoots. He was just obviously um, shooting like birds, like kites, red mm. kites that fly over his house. Yeah, that was it. Again, I, I know. I we were talking through. We were both kind of um, getting on the same wavelength because I've had the same experience where I've tried to do birds in flight in the past and um, was terrible, absolute disaster, <laughs> and sort of. Um, kind of went off it you know just just impossible i can't do this is not you know yeah. i had no interest in it and then with the r5 i started the same and it suddenly locked on and it became so easy to do that once you kind of get into it you start to do, whenever you start to do something you start to having some success then you kind of get more addicted to it yeah if you have a total failure then you kind of you know you're like a spoiled child you know oh, i'm not going to do that again but that's what I think Richard went through as well. And he's had terrible, you know, no, no success in the past. And suddenly, bang, he's getting great shots. And then, right, goes inside, gets his longer lenses. And, you know, it, and kind of, because his hit rate is getting better and better. And he's understanding. And it became like, you know, something he came mad about for a bit. Yeah, because he could actually achieve something he'd always thought about, but never been achievable. Yeah. And that becomes, um, that's one of the, the, the great things about the wildlife kind of um, tracking function of these cameras. But I think um, one thing that maybe doesn't get talked about is what we have improved is the the human tracking functionality. Uh, we have spent a lot of time improving that as a news and sports camera. Yeah. You know? And we were looking at increasing the database of the those sort of subjects, so tracking bodies. So, you know, obviously one 
goal for this project was really at kind of looking at the Winter Olympics kind of. So therefore, we're looking at you know w- Winter Olympics when we started programming it. You know, people wear helmets and masks, and sometimes you can't see their faces. So we've improved the the tracking now, so it's much more accurate for fit eyes for faces heads and body so we didn't do body before but because in sports you don't always see the head people upside down in gymnastics for example so it's good to keep on the same subject so actually moving through the different areas as they kind of if you think of a an athlete uh, sort of a a gymnastic doing a tumble yeah you can see the face you can see the eyes you maybe see the face you can see the head and then only the body as they spin around and you can kind of keep tracking that same subject but what's kind of interesting, I think, is when we started off with programming, you know, looking at Winter Olympics, we were looking at people, what people were, and they're building the database for that. And they included people wearing helmets and coverings around their faces. And obviously, over the last few years, the last year or so, obviously, the pandemic struck, you know, and therefore, as a side effect of the program that we'd already started on, it now tracks people wearing kind of masks and yeah. surgical masks, yeah, which is becomes more of a news kind of thing. So more and more, for news photographers, they you're struggling with people wearing face masks. You know, all the eye and face detections weren't programmed with those, so they struggled a bit. But as a consequence of actually planning to do Winter Olympics, we were already halfway there. So this camera really works very yeah, well, yeah. even with face masks as well. Amazing. Eyes, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's been a bit of scepticism around the R3's ability to achieve 30 frames a second. But this really is true. You know, are there any specific conditions um, and certain lenses? And what about EF lenses? Yeah, well, it will do 30 frames a second. There are obviously cri- there are there are criteria uh to that you know there are certain things that obviously a the should speed needs to be um 125th of a second which is great it's an advantage of the readout um of the sensor it now can read the data up faster so for example the r5 you have to use one to 50th of a second to do a 20 frames a second mm-hmm. this can do 30 frames at 125th of a second so this should be actually one stop slower but achieving because we can get the data out yeah. faster and therefore free up the cycle to do other things like check the focusing you know etc so so to speak they need to be above that um also the depends on the lens but yeah. all rf lenses are capable of doing 30 frames a second and most modern ef lenses are also possible to do so mm-hmm. but the caveat is depending on the aperture that you use on some lenses as well so some lenses, the okay. mechanism slower. Yep, yep. Uh, so therefore, when you want it to close down, then it will actually kind of um, slow down the actual focusing. Um, and it's going to take longer to open and close because they're not geared up to the latest motors to kind of open and close. So it really depends on the aperture. And again, in some tricky focusing situations, you may drop down a little bit as well um, when it's kind of struggling to focus in low light, for yeah. example, or... There are certain conditions which will, when the AF system is struggling, um, then it will obviously have an impact on these 30 frames a second. But the the level of footnotes and conditions for the R3 will really try to reduce those footnotes down. So it literally does what it says on the tin without you having to kind of, you know, double check stuff. Um, you know, there are little things like where you use the flicker detection and all these little extra functionalities that give you a benefit but have an impact on the performance. But yeah. Out of the box, it will do 30 frames a second with minimal kind of um, caveats and stuff. You know, you still get 14-bit uh, processing um, raw files. You get all the 
Yeah, there's no impact on any of the image performance as well, which is another thing that some kind of cameras have had yeah. to achieve the best. That you have to have less image quality. You have maybe more noise because the processing drops. With this, whether you're on one frame a second or thirty, the same level of processing image quality will be achievable. Yeah, which is not. I can't think one of the first cameras that does that. Yeah, no impact on the speed. Yeah, I've seen some, uh, I think some Olympic images of skateboarders, you know, and just these amazing shots. Obviously, it kind of looks almost like video territory and it just looks, I had to watch it, look at it a few times. It was just so incredible. Yeah, you know, there's, it's just, yeah, I think that, again, people keep saying it just gives them more choice. It gives them that, in, you know, that boards here or the boards there or the board, yeah, it is. For those perfectionists in these kind of fields, it just gives them, yeah, there is a lot of images, but. They're narrowing it down straight away to about three or two or three, and it gives them, you know, the the perfect timing to be like in football. Where, where is the ball? Is it on the on the boot mm. or is it in the gloves of the keeper? You know, it just makes the image look a bit more spectacular. You know, is the goalkeeper? I've seen like you know some of the football ones like Eddie. You got one where the goalkeeper is actually off the ground. He's dived. And yes, he's just perfectly you know horizontal to the ground. You kind of have to look twice, and then the ball's in the frame. You know, and you look at all the frames either side, the ball's gone, but he's actually got the shot. Keepers off the ground, yeah, reaching yeah. for it, and the ball's on the end of his glove. It's like, bang, Amazing. that's the image. You know, as an editor, that yes, one. Yes, that is the oh. one. <laughs> yeah, otherwise in the past it was like, oh, that one or that one. Oh, that one's <laughs> the ball and that one. Now you've actually got the, uh, yeah, perfect bang. Yeah, yeah. And what about the, uh, the hot shoot adapter? There are some changes there, is that right? Yeah, again, I think there's been a few maybe we, uh, um, miscommunications or confusion about mm. that. But the new hot shoe, uh, we have a new shoe, and obviously the, the shoe is has two parts. It has a, the traditional Canon shoe and it has the new contact. Uh, so what? Um, so some of our pro end speed lights, should we say, um, have weather sealing, so it matches with the body, so you can use the camera and flash in all kind of conditions. Because we've had to redesign the shoe, the rubber seal around the speed lights will not kind of correctly mate with the body. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you won't get the full weather sealing if you use these speed lights and the R3. They will work. Mm -hmm. It's fully compatible, but the weather sealing, etc. So you won't get the full compatibility in that respect that, yeah, if you are worried about it, yeah. So the new adapter basically allows the new, the old speed lights that are weather sealed to connect in onto the camera mm-hmm. and still maintain that weather sealing all the way through the system you just have to be a little bit careful when you uh, mount the, sh- the flash guns so that the little rubber doesn't kind of um get in the way of the electric con- contacts or mm-hmm. etc uh, but if weather sealing isn't really you know important to you you can work around it you know if you are working in different conditions with flash then you know this relatively cheap adapter will ensure that you will maintain full compatibility and full weather sealing yeah yeah and and on the matter of weather sealing how does this camera perform in say uh you know sub zero temperatures well we we test all our cameras to roughly the same be our the one series or everything so yeah it tests down to you know we test like zero uh we test it to, to about plus 40 as our normal operational ranges so the camera will work in obviously sub zero conditions etc but um at the moment, we're still going through that testing kind of process um, because um, in the, us in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously, you know, having a camera coming out, you know, being tested mainly during the summer, <laughs> there hasn't been that many really good cold conditions to recreate those yeah. um, 
those real conditions that we'll kind of experience um, later in the year. So it's still, you know, it's experiencing. But I think the problem with mirrorless cameras versus the DSLR, DSLRs have been around for a long time, shall we say. They've been around, yeah, for over 60 years. The mechanisms have been, you know, fine-tuned, for example. Uh, but EVF panels, um, LCDs slow down traditionally in colder conditions. Mm-hmm. So as a mirrorless camera, it, performance may dip uh, in lower conditions compared to a DSLR. So I think if you were going to spend, you know, a month in the Antarctic, a DSLR might still be a better option at this stage than a, a mirrorless camera. Now you say the AF system can work down to minus 7.5 EV. So just how dark is that? It's very, very hard to quantify that. But I, I did a, I did a calculation. I know this guy wrote this down. So, yeah. This is an answer isn't totally prepared, um, <laughs> but I, um, I, I, someone did ask me this, and I so I wrote it down, and I think it was um, if you set ISO one hundred and you use like a one point two lens at one point two, it's four minute exposure. Is um, so we are talking basically you're standing in a field, uh-huh. you know, at night time, um, and yeah, it, you can't see what you're doing. It's it, it's wow. it is quite low light, uh-huh. but. We'll caveat to say that all these cameras need contrast, so you can't just go to a field and in no light and expect it to focus. You need <laughs> yeah. something for it to focus on. Like, yeah. So, so something handy like a zebra is always kind of good. Something of good contrast. Mm-hmm. It still needs a level of contrast to lock onto. It won't. You know, it may not even focus on a like a white wall or a black wall, even in like um, you know, bright sunlight, because there's lack of contrast. Yeah, like all yeah. cameras still need that something to set the measure between you know two different tones um so yeah so it will work in low light but it has to be something you know of a level of contrast for it to kind of measure the difference between two areas from yeah, yeah. i've just got this image in my head now just someone wandering into a field and expecting magic to happen without any image to focus on just like yeah, snap, yeah, snap, snap. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we've done it before we've kind of locked ourselves in a cupboard and you know yeah. tried to see how dark it goes and people it's not focusing or oh, what you're pointing at oh, i can't see you know so um yeah you need uh, you know you take the test target in there yeah. and then it kind of magically locks and going oh it's focusing it's focusing and that's Witchcraft. when the magic happens exactly yeah it, it does need a bit of yeah the, but yeah it, it does need something to be able to see but it, you know once once it starts to focus on it is kind of crazy what how dark you can actually focus in yeah and here's another question do you have to use cf express cards to get the best performance well it depends what you mean by best performance i suppose um obviously cf express cards will give you um the large buffer for if you're shooting raw files for example uh, or some jpegs uh, 30 frames a second um but also some of the video functions are only limited to the cf express card so like the 6K RAW um, and the 4K uh, 120 and some of the, the 4K all eye settings need to have um, CFX Express. But you can still record over samples 4K 30, for example, IPB to um, a SD card. Yeah. And does the EOS R3's bigger battery capacity mean the RF lenses will focus faster than they do when attached to other EOS R cameras? Mm, yes and no okay. the answer to that one <laughs> so there is a we uh, earlier this year we launched two lenses we kind of incorporated into the text there's something called uh power jewel yeah which basically means they supported two power inputs they have two contacts which are for power 
most of the other ones only have one so that allows us to put twice as much power into the motor and any um electrical student would tell you if you put twice as much power into a motor yeah <coughs> the faster it goes and the faster the motor goes the faster the focus goes so so the um the rf4028 and um, rf600 f4 support this functionality uh, with the r3c you will get faster focusing with these versus the ef versions but the other lenses um they're pretty much the same um with the r5 because they only have to support the single kind of a power socket input yeah let's talk lenses now we can't forget that two new rf lenses were also added to the expanding range created specifically for the r system now there have been a few questions over the minimum aperture value so why did canon choose this value well you know i think one of the interesting things about these lenses is the fact that with a dslr um you know which a lot of these lenses are designed for is that DSLRs wouldn't focus beyond 5.6. Yeah. You had to have a lens that was bright because the light would um, become too dark through the transmission system of the submirrors and the prisms that sent it down to the focusing. So 5.6 was the aperture that basically all cameras could focus at. Some could focus a bit better, but they were the expensive ones. But you know, that was the general rule for all sort of DSLR cameras. You needed the lens was slower than 5.6, then you didn't get any AF. So with mirrorless cameras, especially the R series, we no longer have that worry. We can focus down to f11 with the R5 and f22 with the R5 and R6, for example. So we don't have to worry about what the aperture is. That is not a limiting factor, you know, to achieve autofocus. Yeah. Um, anymore. So that takes the pressure off the lens designers to do new things. So here we are creating a lens that's 100 to 400, that's smaller and lighter than 70 to 300 that went before it um you know, because we're not having to kind of meet this minimum requirement to make it focus mm -hmm. on yeah, the camera yeah. we, we that that you know and that's one of the whole things with the rf mount is to to free ourselves of, of some of the old rules of lens design that we had this lens had to have this you know um therefore give blank sheets of paper to do different types of lenses and different types of performance that weren't possible with a dslr um, and this is kind of following that same sort of thing, smaller, lighter, you know, lower price, longer yeah. zoom range, you know, or because we don't have to meet a certain criteria that we've kind of had to have for physics. Yeah, reasons. absolutely. I think the great thing as well is it, it opens up the doors to other types of photographers that might have wanted to potentially get by this type of lens or move towards a certain type of photography, but they've been, you know, put off in the past because of price, because of weight and all types of things. Yeah. And again, we were joking the day we were about to shoot about wildlife. There is no such thing when you're shooting wildlife as a lens that's too short. You know, wildlife is not the most cooperative of things. No, so, yeah, it's not. having having a having a longer, longer lens, yeah, lower, lower prices. People want to shoot wildlife, and we're back to a kind of you know, yeah, achieving the images that you want to set out to achieve. Yeah, uh, is really the most powerful thing to motivate you to move further forward. Uh, and not get, you know having disappointing results is the probably the greatest thing that will deter people from taking up a passion in photography. Yeah, so we want to yeah. kind of allow people to achieve stuff uh, and produce images that because we are in a uh, image educated world now. Mm -hmm. You know, Instagram, etc. Everyone seeing more and more imagery, better and better imagery. You know, people sharing the good stuff. No one wants to have crappy photographs because they're seeing so many good images and it shows yeah. you, you know, what they want to achieve definitely so, you know, what we need to help 
provide tools that allow people to achieve what they have in their mind's eye. Yeah, people really want to up their game now and they need a piece of kit that is going to enable them to do it, that isn't going to break the bank. Yeah, Instagram is kind of where you have the professionals and the enthusiasts and everyday people all submitting amazing images at the same time. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, melting pot of imagery and these people are seeing images from such a wide range of people and and you know and it's kind of yeah it's great for them to be able to reach out and uh, you know attempt to be in the same brackets as some of the greatest wildlife yeah, lovers. yeah okay so my final question for you mike if if i want to use an r3 alongside a 1dx mark 3 how easy is it to set them up in a similar way so it's possible to move between the two um yeah, well, I think what's, you know, we haven't, there, there are some functionality what to, we've kind of Im- implemented, such as the network functionality, which is one of the, one of the most key kind of functions of any um, sports and news photographer, how they send images. That is one of the most important elements of any camera. And what we've done is made these two cameras identical in that aspect so they can actually easily move between one to the other and they can actually copy settings between the two cameras so you don't one of the fiddliest thing is setting up the network settings for on multiple cameras yeah and we try to make that as easy as possible so they once they've set up on one they can just copy to the other and copy all the network settings you know you talk to sports photographers like especially football guys they'll have to have a different network setting for every stadium oh gosh yeah so there's like you know so that's 20 network settings they'll need for different stadiums wow yeah in a season because they'll go home and away depending on what team they they cover one team, mm-hmm. and so therefore you know you know being able to name the setting, load in the setting for you know for Burnley for example you know the stadium you you know, you can you know, where is that that's on this card I can load that in so you don't have to enter it when you arrive you already have it preloaded into the camera and you can copy them between cameras etc. You know if something changes so it, it, you know you don't have to that's kind of makes their life so much easier. But we've tried to make all the functionality is similar as well. The controls, the menus are all identical. So batteries, so they only have to have one battery charge and they can just share batteries, share cars, share car readers. So it's, again, cutting down on the amount of kit they will have to kind of take because we, you know, we expect a lot of people to transition from one of these cameras, even a 1DX2 mm-hmm. to, a one, to an R3. They may run them side by side for a while. They, may, they won't almost certainly might not go for two R3 straight away. So you want to make that transition so they can use them side by side and not have to double up on all their gear as much as possible. Yeah, Hence why yeah. You can use the RF adapters that allow them to use all the EF lenses and get all the same sort of level of performance between the two cameras. Wow. And on that note, Mike, I think that's a brilliant place to stop talking all things R3 and wrap up this podcast episode. What do you think? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'll save, save for the next time. <laughs> I have a feeling you and I could probably chat about this for a good few more hours yet. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably, I'll probably remember, I'll go to sleep and I'll probably remember four, four or five different things I should have said. That's always the way. It's always the way. But honestly, you've done such a fantastic job of answering all these questions. I know, like you just joked, you know, something's going to spring to mind, but, you know, it's, it's not about that. It's about answering the questions that have come through and giving your expertise and your knowledge. And I think you've done that fantastically. So thank you so much. And thank you to all of you guys who took the time in to send those questions. Um, and as always, thank you for listening to Shutter Stories. And if you missed last week's episode, it's a very good episode um, about the launch of the EOS R3. Why not check it out now on the Shutter Stories page? 
page of the Canon website or wherever you get your podcasts. All that's left to say is see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate and subscribe in the episodes listing. If you have any thoughts or feedback on today's episode or the podcast as a whole, why not reach out to us on social media? You'll find our details in the description below. We'd love to hear from you.